Today is the seventh and the final message on the Westminster Confession of Faith. It will be like a sermon slash lecture. God willing, I want to come back to this theme of the Westminster Confession every July to commemorate its legacy and its enduring influence on the Presbyterian churches around the world for past 350 years and on. And there are great themes that we could learn and think about the gospel through those topics. So today I want to spend our time together on the last phrase of the larger catechism and so on, which is basically the same as the shorter catechism, question one and answer one. So if you have that section again, if you would open it up, let me read the question and answer. What is the chief and highest end of man? Answer is, man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and fully to enjoy Him forever. And the proof texts are there for you to read. I am sure if you have ever heard something about the Westminster Confession, you probably have heard about the Shorter Catechism 1 and Answer 1. Though I am using the Larger Catechism, they are essentially the same one. They are same. But now I look at this question, and I look at it slightly differently from what I used to. And my take on this is now, this is their Puritanic vision for the world. It's not simply for Christians or for churches, chief and high stand, but men's. So this is not confined to some religious aspect of people. But this includes every square inch of human life and its domain under the headship of Christ. So this question one, answer one, is their vision statement or their manifesto. This is what we are all about. So it is a declaration. This question one, answer one, is a declaration. This is what it is. At the same time, this is chiding, asking you, what are you living for? Or what else are you doing? This is also an advice. This is what your life is all about. And, and also, this is an invitation. Would you like to come to Christ? Would you like to know about Christ? Because it is only through His blood you will be able to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So it is all of that. It is not simply question one about religious part of your life. But this is a great question and a great answer for all mankind. So if somebody asks you, what do you believe? And you could open up that conversation, evangelistic conversation, and you say, you know, I live for God, and I live my life to enjoy Him forever. 
Now we'll focus on the last phrase. Man's chief and highest end is to first to glorify God and fully to enjoy Him forever. That enjoying part that I'm going to speak to you today. I was always fascinated by that phrase. Like I've been saying, I've never known this document until I arrived at the seminary. And it took some time for me to buy the book and read it on my own. The first answer, to glorify God, is the right answer. All Christians, we know that is the case. We, we live for the glory of God. There's no question about that. But if you could be honest, that part, glorifying God, puts pressure on you. When I hear that word, phrase, to glorify God, maybe I shouldn't do this, but I immediately think about spiritual giants from the Bible, from the church history, and you think about their lives, how they glorify God. So when you hear the chief and highest end of man's life is to glorify God, we know it, but again, it puts much pressure on you. But what happens when you come to the second part of that answer? To enjoy Him forever. Now you could breathe a bit. You could breathe and you could say, wow, there is more to it than just serving God. But it's also a uh, puzzling statement. Because that very idea of glorifying God and enjoying God do not go together, we think. The very life of religious Christian life, we think it demands sacrifice, self-denial, rigorous discipline of life. Like Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 9.27, he says, No, I strike my body to obey Him. So when you think about religious life, we are thinking about sacrifice, self-denial, dying to self, and discipline of your life. to Not to do the things that you want to do. But it says in this opening statement, the chief end of man is to, not only to glorify God, but to enjoy Him. So, so we are puzzled. What does that mean? Glorifying God, I kind of understand. You have to serve God, you have to sacrifice, you have to love, evangelize, go to missions, and things like that. But to enjoy Him, but deep inside, we know that is the case, and we know that to be true. You may not, if I ask you, what does that mean to enjoy God? You may not be able to articulate the answer. But deep inside, if you are a born-again Christian, you have experienced it. You know what that is talking about. Deep inside, you know it to be true. But it is still puzzling. So, I marvel at this opening statement because it captures human instinct whether Christian or not, because everyone, they have 
deep inside of their hearts, the seed of divinity that God planted. They don't know what it is. But this question and answer, they bring it out to the surface. And it captures it, articulates it in a perfect balance and order. No other system, whether it is philosophy, politics, whatever knowledge, they are not going to give you that. To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So let me give a couple of things. First, glorifying God and enjoying Him are not to be separated totally. Also, if you read Shorter Catechism, question two, you have to put that together with question one. What rule has God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy Him? And the answer is the Word of God. So look into the Word of God so you know what it means to glorify God and to enjoy Him. But we still ask the question, what does that mean? I mean, we know the Bible has the answer. But where? What part? Where does it teach? What does it mean to enjoy God? Right. So past few months, as I've been studying the Westminster Confession, this is my conclusion. And if you want to know confession better, you have to do three things. First, you need to read the confession carefully. Carefully. It's wordings and even the punctuations. Second, you need to read the proof text. You need to go down and read all the proof text. Third, you need to read the standards together. Confession, larger catechism, shorter catechism, you have to read them together to have a big picture. Even, like I said last week, some of the associated documents, such as the Directory of Public Worship together. So I've been thinking about that phrase, to enjoy Him forever. So I looked up some of the commentaries. There are not that many, especially on the catechisms. There are not many. Confession. They do have some, but when you come to the shorter catechism or larger catechism, you don't really have many commentaries. So I looked up some of them, shorter catechism one, because basically the same one, but there wasn't uh, the answer that I was looking for. And let me just bore you with some of the technical stuff just for a few minutes. I've told you about the teacher that I went to Van Dixhorn, and he rewrote the minutes of the sessions of the Westminster Assembly. What that means is there, are, there were 1,333 sessions for many years. So what, is, what are the minutes? Minutes are basically the recordings of what they said. So I thought if I could go back to that session, whatever session that there was, when they opened up this question, maybe if they recorded some of the conversations, they prob- I could probably get some idea what it means to enjoy God forever. So I looked it up. I had a list from Van Dixon. And 1647, April, April 15th, session number 828, Thursday morning. This is what it says in the minutes. The assembly entered upon debate of the larger catechism. Upon debate, it was resolved 
on the question, what is the chief and highest end of man? Answer was, man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and fully to enjoy Him forever. That's what it says. So it does not record for us what that debate was. Simply that it was debated and the answer was given. Session number 942, October 25th. 1647, Monday morning, now they enter into the Shorter Catechism 1. So I looked it up. All it says is that debate in the Catechism. So if you look at the minutes, in the beginning of the assembly, the clerks, they write a lot. But as time goes on, they don't write much because they are bored. They say debate, debate. So in that minute, we do not get an answer. So what does that mean? Fully enjoy Him forever. This is my answer. I've been thinking about that phrase in my head. And one word caught my attention. That was forever. I was thinking fully to enjoy Him forever. And my focus was enjoying. But forever, I thought, Okay, the one and only thing a believer can and will enjoy forever is God's presence. That's the only thing that you are going to enjoy forever into eternity. We may enjoy justification now, sanctification now. But in heaven, for eternity, forever, what are you going to enjoy? Are we going to enjoy some earthly things or, or even redemption? No, we are going to enjoy His countenance, His presence. So I thought, oh, forever, only thing forever indicates for us is His presence. Then maybe what they are saying, what the divines are saying here in the first opening question is to point us to seek and to be in God's presence, like communion with Him. And I believe that is what they meant. Because when you look at the proof text, if you would look at this proof text, I was looking at the Banner of Truth version of it in the Westminster Confession here, same proof text, but unlike OPC version, Banner of Truth version has italics so if you will look at, look with me in the proof text, Psalm 73. Right, so you, as you read, it is not immediately clear how that is to enjoy God forever proof text. How does that prove what they are saying? But in italics in the banner of truth, there are many portions that were high, uh, uh, had italics, but verse 28 was also that. And it reads something like this in King James. But it is good for me to draw near to God. Here NAS, it says, But as for me, the near, nearness of God is my good. But in King James, it says, But it is good for me to draw near to God. So, to enjoy Him forever, and forever we are going to enjoy God's presence into eternity. Here, what the divines were thinking by providing this portion as the proof text 
What they are saying is, it is good for you to draw near to God and go into His presence and enjoy His communion from now into eternity. Maybe that's what they were saying. Second, par- second proof text is John 17. But the language of John 17 here, especially that, that italics in verse 23, was this, I in them and thou in me. This is Jesus speaking. And that language is the union language. And as I read, I knew that that conclusion was correct. Psalm 73 is telling you to draw near to God, to come into His presence. John 17, it talks about union with Christ and that union that God, Christ had with the Father and now that we will enjoy in Christ. So if I could put all these things together, my commentary on that last phrase, to enjoy Him forever, sounds something like this. What is the chief and high stand of man? Man's chief and high stand of man is to glorify God and to fully enjoy Him to enjoy His presence and His countenance by drawing near to God, by virtue of being united to the risen Christ through the Holy Spirit forever. That is, from now into forever, in season and out of season, when joyful, sorrowful, in life or in death, you could enjoy God fully as you are in His presence And that's something that we all need to do as we hear about this great question and answer. So only in the gospel, the sinners benefit. If there are other gods, the other religions, what do they offer to the sinners? Or whatever they offer to their subjects. But in Christ, in the gospel, we glorify God, but we could also enjoy Him. And Van Dixon in the New Horizons article, he says it, and I read it again, and again it meant something. The shorter catechism, like the larger before it and the confession of faith before that, informs the readers that man's chief end is entirely about glorifying God and enjoying God. That is to say, We exist for God's honor and praise and to benefit from the one who made us. For relationship with himself, what the confession calls having a fruition of him as their blessedness and reward. That 7-1 that we read in the beginning. It was in the negative, but now he puts it to a positive statement. So that's what we and that's what we enjoy. How can we enjoy God? By drawing near to Him. What are we supposed to enjoy? Not simply the gifts and the rewards, but we enjoy Him, the person, triune God. That is why John Owen says in the book too, we need to have communion with the Father and with the Son and with the Holy Spirit together as one God. And we need to learn how to do that. For the remainder of my time, I am going to give you about three quotations to, for you to think about. Because 
For you to approach God, you need to be justified. That is, you need to know the gospel. You need to believe in Jesus Christ because fallen sinners will not come to God unless God draws them near to Him. God has to show them the grace. It really is the born-again Christians who will seek God's presence. And fallen humanity will not. They will run away and they cannot enjoy God. God simply is boring. But when you are born again, you know something about the spark, the life that is within. And you know what it means to enjoy God by singing songs to God, by being in presence. Though you are not saying anything, you understand what that means. So I am not here to talk to you today about how to draw near to God or what to do or discipline or prerequisites, things like that. Though they are necessary, my focus will be your state of mind as you approach God. Because even if you go to God, if you do not have right expectations, you will not and you cannot enjoy His presence. You'll be talking, you'll be fuming, but you will not enjoy God. So your expectations, they have to be conformed to God's Word. And let me just give you three quotations that really touched my heart past few months. Remember, upon returning from Philadelphia, I said, I need to know Calvin more, John Calvin. And a few weeks ago, I regret saying that Calvin was boring. Because I do not want anyone here not to read him because I said that. So I recant. Um, now that I go back and reread Calvin, you know what I see is that after studying the confession thoroughly in Calvin's institutes, you see everything that the confession will say about 100 years later. And the remarkable thing is that young Calvin will say all of that the divines about 100 years later will pick up. So it is amazing how much of the confession I am seeing in Calvin's work. So I am done with the book too. But there were a couple of passages that he said that, and probably this is one way for me to teach you. When I do these things, it is never my intention to boast my reading or anything like that. But some of you may be wondering, I mean, what does that have to do with me? Okay, you go and read Calvin, he's great. But how can that benefit me, my Christian life, in this way? It gives you a new perspective on some of the topics that you are familiar with. It expands your knowledge. So when you approach God, now you have a bigger picture of God. So I'll give about three quotations. I know it could be a little hard, but I have some time. And let me begin with John Calvin's Institute. Book 2, paragraph 10, chapter 10, paragraph 16 and 17. He says, he's talking about the unity of the Old Testament and New Testament. But he says something about the Old Testament saints, how they live their lives by faith. And he says this, If believers fix their eyes on the present condition of the world, they will be grievously tempted to believe that with God, integrity has neither favor nor reward. 
Let us learn that the Holy Fathers under the Old Testament were not ignorant, that is, they knew, that in this world, God seldom or never gives His servants the fulfillment of what is promised them. Did you hear? I say this because when you go into the presence of God, normally we go because we are in need of something. Somebody's sick, you need something to be fixed, you pray to God and you go to His presence. But you need to understand that here His word is seldom. We expect God to give you reward. I served God. I went to church. I did this. I did that. So when you go into His presence, what do you do? Or what do you request? You request, God, here's my receipt. I need some reward. When that is not given immediately, what happens? Your heart fails. And you're thinking about their reward instead of God and His presence. So that hurts you. Your heart. But what Calvin is saying is that because even the Old Testament people knew that, God seldom or never gives His servants the fulfillment of what is promised them. So what did they do? Therefore, they directed their minds to His sanctuary where the blessings not exhibited in the present shadowy life are treasured up for them. He says, then, where is that great stability of the saints? He says this, it is here. He set before his eyes not merely the unstable vicissitudes of the world, tossed like a troubled sea, but what the Lord is to do when he shall one day sit to fix the eternal constitution of heaven and earth. So in that paragraph, that really touched me. To enjoy God, if we could learn something from Calvin, though in God's presence, our eyes should be fixed upon God and his promises for his, that great day, the future day of judgment and reward by faith. Isn't that, I think that's very important. We have to have that right mindset as we approach God. Second thing is this. As you come into the presence of God, we need to know something about the love of God. So, what do you know about love of God? As I was reading this, it expanded my knowledge for the love of God. He asks this question. Again, Calvin asks this question. How can God, who is perfect righteousness, love sinners? Have you thought about love of God in that way? Shouldn't he be repulsed by the sinners, by the sight of sin? We, we, we think about love of God as if that is a natural thing or normal thing. We know God first loved us. We know God set his sight upon us. We all know that. We know God is great. God is love. We know all of that. But what he's asking is a great question. I've never thought about it that way. How can God, with perfect righteousness, love sinners? And he says, and let me just quote Augustine, he says, and Augustine says this, 
incomprehensible and immutable is the love of God. For it was not after we were reconciled to him by the blood of his son that he began to love us, but he loved us before the foundation of the world that with his only begotten son we too might be sons of God before we were anything at all. Therefore he had this love towards us even when exercising enmity towards him we were the workers of iniquity accordingly in a manner wondrous and divine he loved even when he hated us he knew in regard to each one of us both to hate what we had made we had made ourselves sinners so he had to hate us as sinners and love what he had made that's according to him, incomprehensible and immutable love of God. I've never thought about love of God in that way. And as you read, you think about love of God as that. Because of his pure righteousness, he has to hate sin. But we cannot understand that how he could hate us at the same time love us. And Christ's work came 2,000 years ago, but before the foundation of the world, how can pure God do that for the sinners? If Augustine says it's incomprehensible, it is incomprehensible. And something about the love of God as you approach His presence. The final thing is this. What hinders you when you go into His presence? What bothers you? I don't think this comes to people's mind. But I believe this fits perfectly for what we are talking about. I was reading John Owen's Conformity to Christ, and he says, the due improvement of and continual growth in every grace is needed. So I was thinking about just sanctification, but I thought this ties together in this way. How are you going to enjoy God in His presence who is pure light, pure love, pure perfect righteousness? The reason why you are not enjoying Him fully as it was intended to is because of your sin. So, if I am going to fully enjoy Him, if I'm going to enjoy Him better than when I was 20 years ago, I need to be better sanctified. Because sanctification means becoming more like Christ and His image. And as you grow in your sanctification, what is removed from you? Sin. So, the the lesser sin you have in God's presence, wouldn't you enjoy God in His full presence better? If you are not enjoying God in His presence, probably it is because you are not growing in your sanctification. And he says, we need to follow Christ's example. His meekness, his humbleness, his kindness, his patience. He is useful unto all Christians. And his, his talk here really touched me in this way. For man to pretend to follow the example of Christ And in the meantime, to be proud, wrathful, zealous, 
calling for fire from heaven to destroy man, or fetching it themselves from heaven uh, from hell, is to cry, Hail unto him, and to crucify him afresh unto their power. He bids us to condescend to the ignorance, weaknesses, and infirmities of other people. That we ignore, we pass by provocations, injuries, contempt, with patience and with silence. When you are wronged, you just let it go. That pities all sorts of men in their failings and miscarriages. That we may love what is good in all men, and all men even wherein they are not good, nor do good, but we express God's or Christ's virtue to them. Isn't that true? To enjoy God, we need to conform to the image of Christ. So, as Christians, we need to ask this question, or set this before our eyes. What is my purpose in this life? Why am I here? For what am I doing, living? It is so that we could glorify God and fully to enjoy Him forever. I hope and pray that your Christian life would, would be that. You go into His presence because His name is the strong tower and Jesus promised that He will give you rest. So let us go to Him and enjoy Him from now into eternity. Let's pray.